Hello, I'm Dr. Lisa Belial, and you are listening to or watching Radio Maine. Today, I have with me in the studio Claire Enterline, who is a research associate and project manager with the Gulf of Maine Research Institute here in Maine. Great to have you here today. Thanks for having me. So the Gulf of Maine Research Institute, I've been uh, kind of following along, and this is a longstanding institution that's made a lot of really wonderful changes. Uh, tell me about your connection. Sure. Uh, I've been in Maine uh, since 2017, and I've worked as a um, research fisheries research scientist for the state as well as um, um, with the Maine Coastal Program and always known of the Gulf of Maine Research Institute and um, really uh, had a lot of respect for the work that they do. Um, the Gulf of Maine Research Institute is um, an organization that develops and delivers um, solutions to global climate and ocean challenges, and they do that through science and community and engagement um, and education. And the facility in Portland is just lovely. I mean, it's such an appealing place to go. And I, I believe you host a fair, or the facility does, host a fair number of school children and others who want to learn about the Gulf of Maine and the work that you're doing. I assume that was pretty intentional. I'm sure that it was. I haven't been with the Institute for um, that long, but um, certainly education is one of the, the core principles of um, the Institute. And so I believe over 80% of the um, the state's middle school fifth, or fifth and sixth grade students come into the space. There's a learning center, the Cohen Learning Center on the first floor that's an interactive learning center. And so the students get to uh, look at plankton that was collected that morning and do other things. And education, especially at that um, age, is so fundamental um, towards getting students to have an understanding and appreciation of science and how science works works moving forward in their lives. Tell me about your interest in biology, marine biology, why you decided research was the path you wanted to take. Yeah. Um, I've always been, um, you know, an outdoor kid, I guess. I uh, grew up in Ohio. I went to outdoor education camp, so I believe very strongly in um, the importance of getting kids out um, and understanding of, um, you know, what it's like to both be outside, um, but to engage um, in a way that, you know, um, peaks that, that scientific um, inquiry. And let's see, when I was, I went to school at Boston University uh, and uh, studied environmental science and policy. And uh, when I was, I guess my senior year, I studied abroad in Ecuador, and I also studied abroad in New Zealand. And both of those experiences um, gave me some really hands-on experience in geology. But when I was in Ecuador, I had the opportunity to work with um, with my professor to go out into the rainforest and work on a project that he was looking at the impact of uh, an oil extraction area on um, the fish communities. And so I got to get, you know, get in the streams and get, you know, get uh, very wet and muddy and every day. And I um, got hooked on, on biology and um, have stuck with it ever since. Tell me about the overlap between research and policy. Science doesn't happen in a vacuum. So, um, you know, all science, whether it's um, 
purely looking at um, processes is going to be used in some way. And I'm very, I've always been very interested in the interaction of those two things. And certainly in the Gulf of Maine, where we have um, economies and um, communities uh, that both depend on the ocean for their livelihoods and for our food systems and for cultural identity. Um, it's very important to understand the connection between all those things. And um, people often think of policy only in the realm of, of government policy, but in a lot of cases, it's it's not. You know, it's um, it's different um, ordinances that towns will put in and different ways that we um, we interact with our environment. Obviously, the Gulf of Maine Research Institute has has a locality around it, but also there are things that are being done in the organization that are much more um, globally reaching, I guess. I guess that was an inelegant way of saying that, but I think you know what I'm getting at. Yes, certainly. Um, and that's one of the projects that, that I work on. So um, the local and regional challenges that we're working in the Gulf of Maine are, um, are felt in many other places in the world. And uh, the Gulf of Maine is warming three times faster than the global average. Um, there are other places that are um, seeing a similar, a similar war faster warming rate. Um, but the lessons that we're learning here as far as um, how uh, the, the fisheries are going to be impacted um, have, um, you know, corollaries in, in other parts of the world. So the project that I'm working on is uh, one that is a United Nations Decade of Ocean Sciences endorsed program. The United Nations has determined that 2020 to 2030 is the ocean decade where they will be um, facilitating um, interactions between scientists and, um, and policymakers and community members, all to provide actions and projects and programs uh, to get more information about the ocean and more information about how climate change is impacting the ocean and our communities. So the project that um, the program that uh, the Gulf of Maine Research Institute is helping lead with the Environmental Defense Fund is called Fisheries Strategies for Changing Oceans and Resilient Ecosystems. And the goal of the program is to facilitate an international network of collaborators that can develop tools and resources uh, for uh, looking at and helping resilient fisheries and also to provide an information exchange and a forum to further collaborations to um, help facilitate resilient fisheries. So many different things just came out of all the things you just said. Just very, <laughs> lots of really interesting things in, in my mind as someone who's lived on the ocean in the Yarmouth for my entire life and also boats out in the ocean. Um, do you think people understand how large the Gulf of Maine actually is? I, I've never asked someone, so I don't know. <laughs> but the Gulf of Maine ecosystem is um, is huge and it's very unique. Um, so, if you go south of um, Martha's Vineyard and Cape Cod, then um, it's a very different ecosystem. It's um, uh, more shallow and flat, you know, further out um, into the ocean and dominated by a sandy bottom. And the Gulf of Maine ecosystem is is just highly variable, and it's um, it goes all the way from um, around 
Cape Cod up to the Bay of Fundy and then out to George's Bank. And within that, we have we have deep basins. We have um, um, areas of um, shallow, rocky water that are in the middle of the Gulf of Maine, um, Cash's Ledges. And along the Maine coastline, this uh, supports a huge variability of, of habitats. And so it's, it's a really special place. Yeah. I mean, I think that when I first learned that the Gulf of Maine, it's not just right here. I think of it as, oh, I'm out on the island in Casco Bay. Here I am in the Gulf of Maine. When I first learned that it went down into Massachusetts and up into Canada, and it really transcends this idea that it's a Gulf of Maine. It's it's really a much larger place. I think that that was something that surprised me, and yet it shouldn't. It's just, you know, this idea that there's these artificial boundaries around the states that we live in. Like I live in Maine, but Massachusetts is right there and there's New Hampshire and there's another country on the top of us. And sometimes I think it's easy to get a, a little bit overly localized as to where we consider we quote unquote live. That's an important um, point. And um, we are affected um, by um, and the, the Gulf of Maine is is impacted by things that are happening, you know, regionally and and things that we don't even uh, maybe think about normally. The Gulf Stream is a large circulation, um, ocean circulation pattern that comes up from Florida and delivers warm water um, northward. And it's pushed off of the Gulf of Maine a little bit by the Labrador Current that comes um south from the poles and delivers that cold water that, you know, we always think of when we go out to the beach. Um, and those things are may seem so far away from us, but they um, how climate change is impacting um, those two circulation patterns is um, profound and the impacts that we'll have even, you know, very near shore here um, with changes in temperature and salinity and just how our, um, our waters circulate close to shore. Why is the Gulf of Maine warming at um, a significantly um, faster pace, I guess, than other areas? It's an area of active research. Um, um, what um, people are finding right now is that the that Gulf Stream that I talked about, that warm water that comes up from Florida and um, goes northward to the poles and then comes down around um, the United Kingdom, that's expanding. So those warm waters are coming closer um, into uh, Georgia's bank, and so then some of that, more of that might be coming into the, um, the Gulf of Maine. As well, the Labrador Current um, that brings that cold, nutrient-rich water um, south from Canada seems to be weakening um, a bit. So those are two um, uh, areas of active research, but there are published articles um, demonstrating that those two things are happening. Uh, and um, we certainly will you know, there's many scientists that are continuing to look at that. What is the impact that we're already feeling as a result of some of these changes that you've described? Both locally, regionally, and globally, people are feeling many impacts, and these can take the form of um, fish species um, changing where they are generally located in the ocean to be in that temperature that they would like to be. So we call that a species distribution change. Um, so fish that may have been always 10 miles offshore and, you know, one certain location may be moving to a different place now. That's something that we see. Um, also, 
fish and um, all marine fauna are impacted, their bodies and how they live are impacted when the temperature and the, um, the chemical properties in the ocean change around them. So think about how we change if it gets really hot, um, and that actually can impact their physiology um, and how they're able to um, be healthy and survive. So that's a change as well. We also see changes in chemical properties in the ocean. So um, as um, more carbon dioxide is released into the atmosphere, the ocean um, soaks up that carbon. And um, through a chemical process, that carbon then um, makes carbon, it's, it's, um, you know, it's, it's a long process, but it, um, it attracts um, the, um, the calcium away from calcifying organisms. So things like lobsters and um, shellfish and oysters and, and all the things that um, we, we like to eat a lot in Maine and, and in the Gulf of Maine. And so that's called ocean acidification, um, where the um, pH, um, which is the acidity, um, of the ocean, the acidity is increasing, the pH is decreasing, um, but it's what that does is it draws calcium away um, from those organisms and they're less able to fight off disease, their shells may be thinner for um, should, uh, clam harvests and things like that. So those are some of the impacts that we're seeing in our region. As you're talking, I'm thinking about the direct impact on humans and obviously that's a very uh, I guess, an anthropocentric way of looking at it. But I do know that, you know, as a doctor and talking to patients, usually people are interested in how it directly impacts them. So you're describing things like these are fish that we may eat or lobster we may eat or oysters that we may eat. But there's also people whose livelihoods depend upon bringing those things to our plates. And um, I'm assuming that with a change in ocean temperature, you're going to have uh, changes in bacteria and infectivity that impact humans also directly. Are there other things that are coming, that are here or are coming that people are going to see and really feel themselves as human beings? Yeah, certainly, I think the we're highly dependent on the oceans, you know, as you said, for our food systems and our economies and our cultural identities. Um, uh, human health is not my expert area, so I won't, um, I won't go into that, but um, certainly those impacts um, are, are a huge reason why the UN has, um, has named this the Ocean Decade. And the program that we're working on aims to um, address those things. So, you know, we think of we think of um, our economies and our food systems maybe sometimes in a little bit of a vacuum, um, but those things are very interconnected. So how the oceans ecologically are responding to climate change impacts how our, um, we're able to harvest species and then our local economies and then um, also our socio and cultural um, uh, identities. So those things do have a huge impact on um, mental health. Um, if someone is not able to uh, harvest the same way that they have been, make the same kind of money they're making, the added stress of um, uncertainty moving forward. And we have a social scientist within our research team who is um, actively working on um, understanding the impact of these climate change impacts to fisheries on um, people's 
you know, perceptions and the way that they're able to, you know, function as they had been. Well, I do know that during the pandemic, people went to the oceans to seek, I guess, some sort of solace because they were feeling such significant stress. So even at its most basic level, even if you're not somebody who is out on a boat bringing, you know, the catch of the day in, it still is going to impact all of us emotionally, I would think. Yeah, certainly. And there are, you know, impacts beyond fisheries. Um, Our ability to cross the road to get to... um, uh, a place on the coast that uh, may be starting to flood at high tide now um, that will be flooded later. Um, our ability to um, enjoy the oceans um, and have recreational harvests, um, our ability to eat oysters that we want to, but we can't because um, they're uh, there may be an outbreak of um, a virus that year or something like that. So, even if we're not harvesters, we're all so impacted and um, by the ocean and, and the changing ocean, um, both in just the communities that we live in and how they'll be changed. Um, and then also those kind of, you know, secondary things. A lot of people like to, to eat seafood and um, a big part of um, the work that the Gulf of Maine Research Institute does is in working with um with different communities, restaurants, um, distribution centers, and also in schools um, to help introduce people to different kinds of seafood. Um, We all get, I think, a little locked into certain kinds of seafood that we like to eat. And um, as, as the climate warms and as we may fish different species or fish species just in different ways, it's important for us to try different kinds of seafood. So next time you see monkfish stew on the, um, the menu, order it, and it's wonderful. And so some more of the work that GMRI does is to um, work with restaurants to understand how to um, make different kinds of fish and to store different kinds of fish so that um, we we are ready to embrace um, new kinds of fisheries. I think what you're describing is really important because if we're always looking at what is being taken away from us and what scares us and what makes us feel upset or angry, sometimes it's easy to just get overwhelmed and say, I I can't, I can't do any of this. You know, like I'm not going to bother recycling and composting because climate change is going to kill us all in the next hundred years anyway. So what's, what's the, what's the point? And I think that you're, what you're describing this ongoing engagement and, and willing to actually say, okay, this is change. And we are engaging in something that's bigger than we all feel capable of handling, but, but let's not give up on this yet. Certainly. I think there's a, a reframing that needs to be done from climate vulnerability to climate resilience. And that takes many different forms, um, whether it be in um, how we look at, you know, building building structures um, so that they're resilient to higher water levels um, and how we look at what kinds of fish that we'll eat and um, the resilience that we have. Um, and the amazing scientific models that we have to inform that resilience can work together in order to get us to a place where it's less scary and let's move forward. So that reframing you're describing, I, I, I think it is important for larger institutions like the Gulf of Maine Research Institute to get 
behind this because it's easy to get sucked into this this place of vulnerability. It's hard to make a conscious decision to move toward resilience and say, yes, I acknowledge that all the facts that are out there are true. And also, you know, how do how do we get to that next place? And sometimes as individuals, we can make those choices to try to be more resilient, but to have larger groups saying, yes, this is really what we need to do. I think that's really important. Yeah, I would say so too. The Gulf Men Research Institute has um, a, a very strong commitment to dealing with climate change. Climate change is an existential crisis, but you know, to move forward um, into a space where we can um, work to um, better understand areas of vulnerability, you know, shoreside infrastructure, um, and then to create plans, you know, to move forward and be resilient to that. So um, working with um, uh, Union Wharf, which GMRI um, now now owns, to develop a plan um, to under, both understand when some of those events may occur um, with storm surges and things, and then to um, proactively um, just change some things around, raise water heaters up, um, things like that. So in, in a lot of the work that we do with sustainable seafood, um, with that education of fifth and sixth graders to, to look at things in a different way, um, also through a ventures program that provides capital to small businesses as they're um, starting up and um, working to engage in the seafood economy in, in a way that is is proactive and resilient. And then through both the research and um, the, the programs that we have uh, to look at the ocean ecosystems, um, the Gulf of Maine Research Institute is, is using those different programs um, in an interdisciplinary way in order to move forward. So you're originally from Ohio. You moved to the East Coast. I'm thinking that the ecosystem probably is a little different back in Ohio. Did you bring any of your learnings from when you were wandering around in the woods and the fields when you were growing up to the East Coast? Certainly. You know, a forest ecosystem um, we, we think of as so different than the ocean. Um, and it is in so many different ways. But uh, when you walk through the forest, you get to see the three-dimensional um, uh, shapes of things. You get to see the birds flying through the trees. You get to see how the ferns are below the trees. You get to see what things look like in sunny patches versus in more shady patches. Um, how the soil is different underneath a, a grove of pine versus in an oak grove. Um, I worked for uh, quite a few years um, doing seafloor mapping, and seafloor mapping is really the visualization of that 3D structure um, that we don't always get to see. So a lot of those, they're totally different processes. It's a to it looks totally different, but um, the ocean environment is not is not flat. You know, we see it on the water and it looks, you know, it looks so flat and we might put a fishing pole down and think of a fish on a flat mud bottom. We have plenty of flat mud in Maine um, down there, but there's also a lot of other things. And so I think it brought to me um, an understanding of what, um, what it might look like walking down on the ocean, but doing it in a different, in a, you know, with, with sonar and in a different way. And it's also interesting to think about the fact that, you know, you're ob it's obviously the Gulf of Maine Research Institute, but it's not that far away from the ocean that you still have trees and moss and lichen and other critters that roam the earth and fly in the air that are also impacted by the ocean. Oh, certainly. Yeah, it's... Um 
it's such an interconnected environment and, um, the, the, the shorebirds that we have, um, you know, are obviously highly dependent on, on the ocean. And, um, also the things that we do on land really impact the ocean. We don't, um, always think of that, but the, um, the water that goes into the ocean after it's been, you know, going on a street is um, very different and contains a lot of um, things that uh, we don't really want in the oceans. And so, you know, both our impact um, on the coastline is is highly affecting um, in ways that we might not always think about. And there is, you know, there's an, an entire watershed, you know, so people who enjoy a lake or a river or a stream, I mean, it, it, it's most likely connected back to the ocean anyway. Yeah. So truly, these people are upstream in many cases. And so just understanding what they're doing and how is it's impacting everybody who's kind of the next step along the chain. And those are just the people. I don't, I don't think we can impact animals that much. But, but yes, everything is interconnected, as you've said. Um, in talking about this sort of global um, connectivity, what lessons have you learned from others who are working on similar issues around the world? Well, the Fish Score program, and I say Fish Score, that stands for Fishery Strategies for Changing Ocean and Resilient Ecosystems, but that's a mouthful. So I say Fish Score, um, is uh, just being implemented. We're just in the process of uh, developing on-the-ground partnerships and helping to um, make connections with ongoing projects that are happening around the world. So right now, we're just at the beginning of stages. Um, the um, researcher that I work with, Dr. Kathy Mills, has worked with a group, um, a global group of scientists and practitioners and policymakers over the past few years to develop a climate resilient fisheries um, planning tool. And that tool is designed so that it's not a one size fits all here's your climate problem, here's what your strategy is. It's um, designed to um, be a framework to be adapted anywhere uh, for the very unique characteristics of a place. And, um, and it helps identify, um, it, it, guides, it guides the people that would be using it through questions that, so that they can identify what are the impacts of climate on, um, on our fishery and our community system, um, what are our, the inherent resilience attributes that we have to that, um, and then how do we make a plan to move that forward? And so we're starting to implement that in a few places, um, and hope to do so more over the the decade. And through that work, we will then be um, looking at the um, how those different frameworks play out in different places. Are there commonalities amongst? Um, resilience attributes and amongst the strategies that people decide to move forward with and what are the differences there will definitely be differences and why do those differences happen and um, helping to use those to say that a strategy for say changing permit application or permit allocations in, in a given place really has no place in another area that uses permits because of the way that that fishery is structured. So just at the beginning stages, and I'll be excited to talk to you in eight years and tell you what we learned. Well, good. I'll, I'll make sure that we, we keep you on our tickler file and we'll get you back okay. in in eight years to talk about it. Okay.
Okay. <laughs> One of the reasons why um, we wanted to bring you on to talk with us about the Gulf of Maine Research Institute, even though we are we do a lot more with art and creativity, is not only the fact that the Gulf of Maine Research Institute is one of our neighbors in Portland as the Portland Art Gallery, and also I believe that uh, GMRI actually had an event at the Portland Art Gallery, so there's a connection there, but also that our artists are actually very aware of the environment. Um, we actually have people who paint outside and we have people who spend a lot of time looking at landscapes and seascapes. And I think that that for us is a really, um, I think it's a really necessary connection. I think it personalizes the impact of something like climate change, that if you're out there on a day-to-day basis watching how the seascape is changing, and then over time you're really noticing, oh, there's a really different erosion pattern now. I I think that has a a pretty significant personal, um, I guess, impacts the word I keep using, but that maybe not everybody recognizes. Certainly. Um, I have, I have two oil paintings of tide pools on my walls at home. And, um, there is definitely that connection. Um, I think another, um, piece that I'm picking up there is the importance of local long-term knowledge and understanding what the changes, um, are and how they're happening. And, um, every person sees that in their own way. And, um, those, those observations are um, information and they're, they're, you know, those, are, those can be valid scientific pieces of information. Um, the Gulf of Maine Research Institute has a very large citizen science um, component in supporting ways if people would like to engage. Um, and those people are outside and they are seeing things. And um, sometimes people just don't know where to put that information. And so there are citizen science um, engagement opportunities for uh, looking. Right now, we just started a new one to look at low tide muscle beds. And I believe that the next date for going out and simply taking a photograph and saying, what do you observe? Maybe a great time to you know, take a photograph that can be used later for fodder for a painting of a low tide um, tidal flat. Um and also looking at, at vernal pools, um, looking at um, smelt spawning. Um, and so those, those observations that people make are incredibly valid and incredibly important. And, um, and keeping them in a notebook for yourself is wonderful. And there's also certainly ways to um, engage and provide that information to scientists that can use that to look at long-term and more widespread patterns. Claire, I have learned a lot today, and you really piqued my interest as far as um, continuing to learn more. Certainly, I'm sure things have evolved since the time that I was visiting the Gulf of Maine Research Institute myself as a youngster. Um, Where can people learn more about GMRI? Certainly, we have a great website um, that gives information on upcoming events. There will be a series of um, seminars that will be given called the Sea State Symposiums. Um, Those will be evening presentations brought by um, the Gulf of Maine Research Institute featuring scientists both with GMRI and um, and, and from the region. Those are a great way to learn about things. There's also community events, um, and the citizen science um, uh, engagement is is a great way to, to learn more as well. 
I've been speaking with Claire Enterline of the Gulf of Maine Research Institute. If you happen to be in Portland, going to the Portland Art Gallery, the uh, GMRI campus is right down the street, so you can investigate in person. If not, you can actually hop on over to their website after you've been to the Portland Art Gallery website because there's a lot of commonalities. People who are curious about art can be curious about science as well. I'm Dr. Lisa Belial, and you have been listening to or watching Radio Maine. Thank you for coming in today. Thank you, Lisa. Thank you.